Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Greg Easterbrook, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor at the Atlantic Monthly and the New Republic. We're going to talk today about the ideas in his most recent book, The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. Greg, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Greg, in the first part of the book, and it's a fascinating book, by the way, it's full of incredibly interesting data, um, numbers, insights into those numbers, and speculation about uh, the world around us in, in both material and non-material uh, ways. So it's really quite, a, quite a, an achievement. In, in the first part of the book, you talk about how economic life in America is getting better and better and that the average person is sharing in that prosperity. That's a somewhat controversial claim. I wish it weren't because I, I agree with you, but it's a somewhat controversial claim. What's the evidence for that claim? Well, let, let me. It's probably easiest to start by telling you why, how I decided to write this book. I, I started working on it in the late 1990s, and originally it was just going to be an argument that most things were getting better for most people in the United States and European Union. The book mainly concerns, and there was some day in about 1997 or so when, when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House and Al Gore was Vice President. They both said on the same day, Newt Gingrich said something like, "America is falling apart at the seams." And on the same day, Al Gore said something like, America faces the greatest crisis in the history of civilization. And I sort of looked out the window and the sky was blue, and I'd been reading data on income and living standards and health care and education there, and just about every barometer was positive. And I thought, what are these guys talking about? So I started off to write a book that was just going to argue that most things were getting better for most people. And I think... On what we can measure statistically, that, that that case is pretty much open and shut. Living standards have been rising steadily since the end of World War II and are at the, the, the highest level that they've ever been for the average person. It's the average person, not the wealthy, that concerns me. If you measure by housing size or cars per household or any of these material things that we can we can measure, the increases are spectacular. Housing size is, is a good barometer. In the 1950s, the typical new house in the United States was 1,100 square feet and had four and a half residents. Uh, last year, the typical new house in the United States was 2,300 square feet and had two and a half residents. Uh, so the, the age-old desire to have a room of one's own, American society is topping it. One now has two rooms of one's own if you buy a new house. And uh, for better or for worse, each of those rooms often has a television in it. Has a television <laughs> in it, yes. A color television. A color TV, mm-hmm. yes. It, I mean, that uh, a TV is a kind of a superficial... A barometer of, of material progress, but if you looked in the 1950s, the typical home contained one black and white television, and, and now the average in the United States is four color televisions per home. Now we might actually be better off if we had fewer televisions, but to the extent that's a that's a proxy for material success, it's it, it's sure there. The typical American household now has three cars. Um, Turn to more important things than material possessions. Uh, crime is in a long term decline, especially the murder rate, the, the part of crime that we worry about the most. 
all forms of pollution except for greenhouse gases, which is an important exception, but all forms of pollution except for greenhouse gases are in long-term decline. They've, they've all been declining for years, if not decades. Uh, highest level of degree earned in other barometers of education continues to rise in the United States, even with the big swell of immigrants that we've had in the last 15 years. We're still progressively a better educated country, which is very important. Discrimination, I would argue, is at an all-time low in the United States, discrimination against minority group members, women, sexual orientation. It's still a problem, but it's the lowest that it's ever been. Uh, longevity is the highest that it's ever been. keeps rising annually on pretty much the same basis. Almost all, not all, but almost all disease rates are at all-time lows, including cancer. Uh, cancer mortality, not just cancer rates, but cancer mortality has been declining in the last three years. Heart disease is Heart, heart disease is declining and death, deaths from heart attacks are at an all-time low, deaths from strokes are at an all-time low. Now, of course, this is compared to population increase, but all, all, all these things are uh, pretty much unremittingly positive across the spectrum of what you can measure. And, and, and even when you turn to virtue, uh, uh, most barometers are positive. Uh, uh, the divorce rate has stopped increasing and is declining shallowly. Uh, uh, Americans drink less than they ever have before. Most forms of drugs we use less than we ever have before. Uh, un unwed births, especially to teenagers, are at an all-time low. Just practically everything that we can measure is positive, and most of these trends have been positive for, for years, if not for decades. Well, particularly the um, the economic trends. Of course, we still have a recession every once in a while, but they have gotten less frequent. And when they occur, they're shallower. Right. Of course, they're often misunderstood, as you, as you point out. Uh, people are prone to calamity and uh, talking about things in an exaggerated way. I remember in the 1991 recession, someone telling me it was the worst. It was worse than the Great Depression. <laughs> and I said, "Well, you know, in the Great Depression, unemployment was 25 percent. That's one in four. I don't remember what it was in 1991. It, it was, I think it was maybe high single digits, maybe seven. I don't remember, but it wasn't 25. And when it's 25, the sky isn't isn't blue and, and the sun isn't shining. It's palpable, and a lot of the economic distress that we still have that you've that you mentioned that everything isn't perfect, but it, it is at the point now where looking around and, and going to the mall or going to the grocery store or looking at the general pace of the economy that you can observe with your own eyes, it looks pretty good. And when you look at the data, it looks pretty good. When you take the broader approach of going beyond your own armchair theorizing or your own casual interpretation of life around you, it's uh, pretty positive. Yeah, yeah. For, especially for the last 15 years since the 91 recession, the economy, it's almost spooky how productive and stable it's been. Inflation's been low despite all of the spending on the Iraq war be that right, be that wrong. It hasn't seemed to have harmed the economy. Productivity keeps rising. Uh, incomes keep rising. Unemployment is very low. We, we, we're now in about our 12th year of what would have been considered full employment in the 1960s and 70s of unemployment below 5%, um, which is a tremendous figure. Now, of course, not everything in the economy is perfect. Uh, rate, rate of growth in middle-class income has, is in a long-term period of stall, um, but let's think about that for a second. Uh, it's stalled at the highest level that it's ever been. In the last 25 years, middle-class income is, in real dollar terms has risen only about 
and in previous years it rose faster than that, so we would all like it to rise faster than that. But it is still stalled at the highest level that it's ever been. You know, stalled's a little strong. It's growing at a slower rate. Part of the reason for that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, is is the immigration. Another reason it's stalled relative to rates uh, in the early part of the last 50 years is demographic change. Divorces have increased dramatically in the 70s, which changed the nature of households and families so that you have a big measurement problem there. So I think there's a lot of a lot of the numbers that people use to paint a particularly pessimistic picture are distorted, but it is it is appears to be growing sl- slightly slower than it has in the past, but it's still growing, and as you say, it's still at a very high level. It's still growing. It's still at a high level, and it's important always to bear in mind how we don't factor immigration into these equations, and really should. Uh, personally, I'm pro-immigration. I think our borders should be as open as reasonable and accept as many people as possible, and of course. The, the key statistic and that we all must bear in mind is that annual, each each of the last 16 years, the United States has accepted more immigrants than all other nations combined. But if you great, accept great data point, <laughs> yeah, if you accept very large numbers of immigrants, most of whom are entering the country below the median wage of the nation, it, you're going to hold down a lot of statistical barometers. One That's is right. median household growth. You're going to hold. You, you're going to produce scary-sounding statistics on the percentage of the population that has health insurance. Um, if there were, if we didn't have a very liberal open immigration policy, median household income would be rising a lot faster than it is. The percentage of the population without medical or health care insurance would be far lower than it currently is. School scores would be rising faster than, than they are. SAT scores would be rising instead of flat, etc. I, I think we should have open borders. But if you're going to have open borders, you have to accept that bringing in large numbers of immigrants tends to hold down the middle of economic statistics. As, as be... they are measured, not necessarily holding down the well-being of the people who are who are not immigrants, which I I think the point that's that's important for our listeners is to be skeptical of data summaries that ignore that or that ignore the demographic changes, which are dramatic over, over say, the last 30 years, and the doom and gloomers – uh, the pessimists like to cherry pick certain uh, figures and, and ignore those things. But I'd like to talk about that <clears throat> that cherry picking for a minute. A, a lot of times, what the pessimists will do is is pick a particular facet of life that is not going well, and use it as a proxy for the larger uh, picture. So, for example, they'll talk about how healthcare costs are rising, which they are, which they are. Uh, and why they are rising is is an interesting question, which we'll ignore for the moment. But they are rising. So if you're only looking at this question of whether you should be optimistic or pessimistic, you could be pessimistic. But one of the reasons they're rising is because more people have access to health care than ever before. Right. So an incredible number that I, got, that I loved in your book was um, in 2001, there were 200,000 knee replacements, which was a category of uh, – Healthcare that didn't exist. Didn't even exist. Right? Uh, what, 25 years ago? 20 years ago? Um, I don't know how long they've been replacing knees, but the 200,000 knee replacements aren't, they're not all going to the richest Americans. They're, they're going to all kinds of folks across the economic spectrum. And so to complain that, that our healthcare system is too expensive and therefore people are suffering, when in fact I think causation runs the other direction because people have so much access to healthcare, they're driving up the price. Yes, I, I would. Uh, healthcare is a. Healthcare is a case where most commentary is needlessly pessimistic. Prices are rising, 
but they're they're rising because health outcomes are improving. People are living longer, and of course, the, the senior citizens require more health care than the population as a whole. So you'd expect, as people live longer, your health care costs would go up. Suffering is being allevi- alleviated better ever than ever than before. Each passing year, and that's not perfect, but but uh, today the, the artificial knee is a is a great example. Uh, one generation ago, a forty year old woman who had persistent knee pain would go to her doctor, and the doctor would say, "Well." Your knee hurts, you know, that's just life. Take aspirin, don't move around rapidly in the morning, lay in bed for an extra half hour on cold days, just live with it. Give up tennis. Give up tennis, right, stop hiking. And now uh, the same person goes to a doctor and says, my knee hurts, and if somebody's got a true medical condition, says, okay, we'll replace your knee, and it's going to cost you very little, and your suffering is alleviated. Uh, I have a good friend of mine who was a college basketball player who's, I think, now 57 years old, and he had he had severe conditions in both the patellas of both knees, and he had both his knees replaced. And now he's fine. He does whatever he wants. <coughs> and this contributes to the well-being of society. There, there are many examples of this across the board and the reduction of pain and suffering in health care. But, yes, it does, does run up the cost. I'd much rather that society be spending money on making people healthier and, and alleviating their suffering than all the other ways that we could spend money. You mentioned in passing he didn't have to pay much for it, which was great for him, and it's one of the reasons it was a relatively easy decision. He still had to endure the pain and uncertainty of the surgery, but the monetary cost was relatively low uh, because of that, it being subsidized by either uh, the government or uh, the insurance company in the the, uh, pay package. Uh, It's one of the reasons we use so much health care, and it's a lovely thing to have all that health care, whether it's uh, we're getting our bang for the buck is a different question, but you certainly can't uh, complain that, that health care is, is a major problem because it's expensive. That clearly is only part of the picture. Yes, the, the idea that you, you constantly hear rising health care share of GDP in the United States referred to as wasteful, and I always laugh, wasteful? Looking after people's health is wasteful? Yes, of course, the system could be improved, um, but I'd much rather society be dedicating resources to extending lives and improving lives and reducing suffering than all the other things that we could spend money on. Now, most of the examples we've been talking about are referring to the last, oh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. But one of the things I like in the book and, and something I'm that I think about a lot is the transition over the last, say, 100 years in America. And you talk about how dramatic uh, that transition is for the average American. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, this is true in Western Europe as well. But uh, people, we, we all tend to idealize the good old days and, and the golden era by bygone. My guess would be if there were a time machine and you could take a one-way trip back into any year before the year of your own birth and just live there as an average person, there isn't anybody who would agree to go back into the past. I mean, think of just what American life was like 100 years ago. At, at that time, less than 1% of the population attended college. Their prejudice against blacks and against women was institutionalized and against Jewish people was institutionalized and in, in awful ways. Standards of living were very low. Communication was hard and expensive. The average person rarely traveled. Uh, with crop failures still happened. Food prices were a very high percentage of the average person's budget. To, to the physical sensation of hunger was still common for a lot of Americans. You, you could, and, and of course, personal comfort, no air conditioning, no central heating, etc. You could go on and on, but I think uh, I think the 
not just the material improvements of the standard of living that are all around us, but the improvements in personal freedom and access to knowledge that we have today compared to 100 years ago, it's just a total slam dunk that for all of the problems of the year 2007, we are all so much better off than we were in previous generations that to hear people complaining and grumbling about it, uh, if our ancestors could hear that, they wouldn't be terribly impressed, would they? You have a very nice uh, description of this focused on the United States. You go decade by decade and talk about how each decade would have incredibly large drawbacks uh, about them. Uh, I love when you see – I'm on uh, page 82 here. You say, the first decade of the 20th century, which we do romanticize, by the way, I agree. City air in the United States and Europe was thick with choking smoke from unrestricted coal burning. Pigs roamed the streets of New York City and Philadelphia eating garbage that was thrown out of windows. There were three million horses drawing carts within city limits of American cities, meaning horse manure was everywhere. In Chicago, elevated trains pulled by steam engines rained sparks and cinders on pedestrians. In pleasantly pastoral small towns, only 2% of dwellings had running water, causing many women to be little more than serfs to the carrying of water and doing of laundry, to say nothing of child-rearing. So it's a the romance we have about it is um, selective. <laughs> Oh, yes. If if you could go back into the past, you would find that life was quieter and perhaps less stressful than it is today. There's certainly a lot of stress in modern life. Uh, the physical beauty of the country might have been greater, um, but your living standards would have been far lower. Your, your health outcomes would have been a lot worse. You would have lived a shorter time with far more discrimination, uh, less opportunity, less personal freedom, uh, it just the, the list goes on and on, and and, 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 and a non-trivial chance of um, having a very unpleasant experience at the dentist that could lead to death. Yes. Besides the fact that that a root canal could uh, would would not be the same in 1900 as today, the the um, the risk of infection, the lack of antibiotics, um, small things often killed people then that, that that are harmless now. Yes, my father's father, Harry Easterbrook, died in 1927 of lockjaw. Which was then incurable, and today we can we can fix with a cheap injection of a vial of chemicals. Uh, in every family in the United States, there's a recent example of an ancestor who died of something that we laugh at or pay no attention to today. My wife had pneumonia uh, two winters ago, which still kills a handful of people, a small number of people in the United States, mostly the elderly and 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 very young children, but. Uh, in 1900, it killed lots of healthy people because we had no way to fight it. Well, I'm curious, before we move on to the um, second part of the book, I'm curious about the reception that your book received. Um, your first book was called A Moment on the Earth. Excuse me, not your first book, but a recent books in similar spirit, A uh, Moment on the Earth, was a an optimistic look at environmental trends where you documented all the environmental uh, issues that were getting better, and you've done a similar thing in this book, in the progress paradox, to show that things aren't as bad as a lot of people seem to think. Um, you'd think being an optimist and remind and showing people how great things are would you'd be well received. People would would embrace you and say, you know, I didn't know that. Thanks so much. I guess I can sleep better now. But my guess is that isn't quite the response you got from either book. <laughs> My unexpected lesson has been that the good news scares people or makes them angry. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is especially true in the media, but it's not confined to the media. 
the American media are, of, of course, love bad news, um, but are, are actively suspicious of signs of social progress. Um, they consider it Pollyannaism, uh, and of course, I'm not a Pollyanna. No, no one's foolish enough to maintain that everything's getting better. Uh, but, but I, I think the, the media has a lot of trouble dealing with indications of human virtue. They have a lot of trouble relating to reforms that work, to the idea that we can take our fate into our own hands and improve things. And environment's a good example, because with the exception of greenhouse gases, which is an important exception, uh, all environmental trends have been positive in the United States roughly since 1970 with the creation of the EPA. Smog is way down, acid rain's way down, water pollution way down, etc. And this is been done during a period of great economic growth. So you would think that the media would see on this as a wonderful story of, look, here's proof that government works, here's proof that regulations can make your lives better. And instead, the, the, the media continue to, as a group to masquerade as if environmental situations were getting worse. And I think it's just because institutionally, and politicians are somewhat to blame for this too, but institutionally, reporters, editors, political figures just can't deal with evidence of progress. Whereas they're very comfortable with scandal, um, corruption, claims of doomsday, etc. There's a cohort of American life that seems to like scandal and doomsday. Yeah, part of it is, uh, is the obvious point that it sells. Yeah. I don't think that's the whole story, and we'll talk more about it. I, I first want to just mention that I think a lot of environmental trends were, were improving before 1970 as well. And there, there's a tendency in the creation of the EPA, there's a tendency to... Uh, attribute all improvements in whatever aspect of life uh, that there is to uh, some intervention or particular thing we can point to. And if you look at, say, uh, automobile uh, fatalities per million miles driven, so if you look at the risks of dying in an automobile crash as a function of, um, of travel and car, correcting for the fact that they're more miles driven, it, it's been falling steadily. Proponents of of various safety regulations will say, yeah, it's because of those regulations. But of course, those trends were very similar before those regulations were passed. And that's tr that's true in many areas, and, and I think that that brings us to to one of the reasons that I think people are so skeptical. It's not the only reason, or one of the reasons that that the media sells bad news, and that's that if you if you're optimistic as I am, and as you, as you've been in these books we're talking about, if you're optimistic implies to some people that that means we're done. You don't have to do anything, and therefore uh, we we don't have to worry about anything. And I, I know that's not your position. It is, it's closer to my position in that I think a lot of the reasons that life is getting better uh, are due to the fact that people are free to choose their own lives, make their own choices, and that voluntary decentralized uh, action is often, if not is often beneficial, but for those who are who are skeptical of that and who are worried about government intervention as as a necessary way to improve things, if you suggest that things are getting better, that that somehow in their mind undercuts the demand for that, and I think makes it harder to tell the truth. Yes, yeah, there is an assumption that if you're you're happy that things are improving, that that must mean you're complacent, and of, and of course. No sensible person feels that way. Uh, the final chapter of the progress paradox is called It's Never Too Late to Change the World. And I argue there that tremendous improvements in things that seem like unsolvable problems, uh, such as crime decline, pollution decline, uh, decline of the number of people who are on welfare, etc., 
rising employment, really positive trends in, in areas that just 20, 25 years ago people thought were hopeless, tell us that we can create positive trends anywhere we turn. And whether it's the elimination of global poverty or the or prevention of global warming, uh, that we should be optimistic that reform works and people can achieve things and, and, and where, where we use our efforts, our efforts are usually successful. So I, I think to be aware of all the things that are improving in our lives around us is a clarion call to try to improve even more things. But because most, many intellectuals, media people, and politicians, if I can group them all together, don't even understand how much the country has improved or don't want to understand it is probably the more is the better way to say it. They don't understand, they, they don't get this logical connection between being an optimist and therefore being courageous about future needs of improvement in society as well. My guess is that is that, that, that last chapter didn't uh, <clears throat> win you enough fans, um, that the overwhelming reaction was a uh, was that Pollyanna uh, complaint from your uh, reviewers and friends. Uh, I assume you lost a lot of good cocktail party invitations. After. No, no, that didn't happen. Uh, good. <laughs> in terms of the reaction to this book, I found that the sort of establishment press, New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, kind of sneered at it as a work of Pollyannaism. But everybody else has loved it. Readers have loved it. Um, the alternative press has loved it. The, the Internet Society loves it. Everybody below that level of we're the New York Times and we'll tell you what to think has been real interested in this book, and I've been happy about that. Yeah, I, I certainly liked it. And, and as again, as a fellow optimist, um, I always presume that people will should be thrilled to hear that things aren't as bad as they, as they seem to be. Uh, but as you say, at certain levels, that's that's not a welcome message. Well, let, let's turn to the uh, second part of the book, which is a set of speculations and insights into why is it that if everything is getting better, or virtually everything, or so many things are getting better, if our standard of living has, and quality of life has been transformed so dramatically over the last 30, 50, and 100, and 200 years – why aren't we more happy about it? So tell us what tell our listeners what some of the uh, explanations that you you explore in the book for that uh, pessimism in the face of the data. Well, I'll tell you, we started off by I started off by explaining how I began working on this book. That originally it was just going to be a, an argument that most things were getting better for most people and most social trends were positive. But then, in the course of working on the book, I came across all this psychological data that shows that people are no happier as a result of rising living standards and longer life. And that's that, that became the second half of, the, of this book. That's why it's called The Progress Paradox. To, to me, the big paradox isn't what the media thinks of all this. The paradox is the effect that it has on our own personal lives, that living standards are rising, freedom is rising, education is rising, and yet we're no happier. <laughs> and and the, the data seems real clear on this. The percentage of Americans that describe themselves as happy has not, increased at all in the last 50 years, uh, while incidence of clinical depression has risen very dramatically in the last 50 years. We seem no happier as a result of gains in society, and by the measure of clinical depression, at least, we, we may be worse off. I guess one of the uh, problems with that, those facts is that while they are true, and I think they are true, I think, I don't think, I think money... I don't think money buys happiness. I think we, we've known that for a long time. The question is, what do we mean precisely by happiness? The, the data that you're talking about on the happiness stuff is typically self-reported, right. and it's it's 
there's a lot of discussion in the literature about what the significance of that fact is, whether that how that tarnishes or, or uh, increases the reliability of the measure. But you know, if you think back to your thought experiment that we talked about a few minutes ago, of, would you want to travel back in time to any particular decade? Most people would be horrified to do it. Uh, example I always like is you know traffic uh, at the Mexican-U.S. border goes north. It doesn't. There are no guards facing uh, north to protect Mexico from U.S. immigrants. Uh, I, I I agree with you. I think immigration is a very good thing. But but in general, the traffic flows in one direction. It flows from poor to rich. Um, people swim to Miami. They don't try to break into Cuba. So one of the challenges to this happiness literature is the fact that what people say about their happiness is that wealth doesn't seem to matter. How they behave is this, they certainly act as if it does matter. Yes, I, I think, yeah, that's a very strong point. That we Basically, everyone agrees with the statement, money does not buy happiness. And yet very few people live as though they agreed with that statement. We act as though we, we think money does buy happiness. It's true, as you say, Russell, that, that self-reported happiness figures are, are squishy. Uh, and Daniel Kahneman of Princeton, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics, I think, five years ago, this is his field. He is, uh, his specialty is studying how to figure out whether people's well-being is increasing or not. And he's always admitted that, that the numbers that he produces are, are relatively weak compared to other ways of measuring things. And the famous example he gives is that in interviewing college students, he found that if he began an interview by asking them if they were happy, the majority would say yes. If he began an interview by saying, have you had a date this week, and then asked them if they were happy, the majority would say no. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's called uh, framing I mean, in the literature, and it's a, it's a powerful thing. <laughs> it's a big factor. and yeah. uh, All of us go back and forth on whether we feel happy, and if I asked you at different times of the day, you might give me different answers. But, but if you look at polling data for the country, this becomes scary. Uh, Americans have, for the last 20 years or so, have been saying that they think the country is going downhill, that they think that its future is negative, that their children will live less well than they lived. And this was true long before 9-11 gave us a, a security fear. Uh, there are several possible explanations. We could talk about them if you want. Yeah, please do. Well, the first, I, I think it will eventually be shown that that evolutionary psychology has a lot to do with this. Your listeners may know that evolutionary psychology, which assumes that not just our bodies but our minds also evolved in response to natural selection, is a disputed field. Some of its uh, claims are not yet proven, but assume for the sake of argument that it will someday be proven and that it will be accepted that our mindsets evolve just as our bodies do. Well, it is likely that we are descended from the discontent of the far past, that our ancestors who were never satisfied with their possessions, no matter how much they acquired, and who were always scanning the horizon for predators, were more likely to survive and send their genes down to us, whereas our happy-go-lucky ancestors stopped us, smelled of flowers, and got eaten by something. Uh, and, and so we are likely descended from the discontent of the past. Genes are not destiny. They're only one factor in, uh, in many of making us what we are. But I, I think we should be aware that human beings may be predisposed to complaining. Uh, the fact that, we're at, we, uh, that we see complaining all around us may not be a coincidence. It may be the way we're wired. That's yeah, one of the possible explanations. Yeah, and the stress that you refer to. It's remarkable how, um, 
how stressful our lives are and how pitifully small the things we worry about are compared to in the past, as you point out. You'd think uh, the things that people worry about today being so much smaller than the things people worried about 50 or 100 or 200 years ago or 1,000 years ago would make us happier. It, it does not seem to. No, it doesn't. I, I think it's a great sign for society. People sometimes complain that, isn't it silly that today we worry about electromagnetic emissions from cell phones and, and um, uh, other r- really small threats? I think it's a great sign that we worry about those things because it tells us that the really big worries in life are declining. The more trivial our worries become, the better for society. But psychologically, we seem to exert the same amount of worry power on trivial issues as we do on significant ones, and it may have something to do with why rising living standards doesn't make us any more content. Another, you mentioned stress, Russell. Stress is real. It's it's not in your brain. Stress is mediated by a hormone called cortisol, and when researchers test our bodies for cortisol, they find that our bodies today contain a lot more of it than the bodies of recent generations did. So, so we're clearly subject to more stress. So there, there are four or five things I propose in the product, progress paradox as counterbalancing factors, why it is that, that material standards would rise and yet people feel no happier. And, and clearly one of the counterbalancing factors is the rise of stress and anxiety in modern life. What are some of the others? Well, uh, I, I actually think one of the biggest uh, counterbalancing factors is the belief in meaninglessness is, that's expanded in the post-war era. And paradoxically, I blame this on college. Uh, I, I think it's great that more and more people go to college, and I long for a world where every single person goes to college. But we've seen a huge increase in higher education in, in the last two generations. And what do they teach you in college? They teach you that your life is meaningless, that your existence is just... A, a, a random coincidence of amino acids and molecular heat exchange. And I think there's a very bright line involved here. The psychological literature shows that people who believe their lives have meaning are much more likely to be happy than people who believe that life is meaningless. And that people who believe that their lives have meaning have everything we can measure. They have fewer heart attacks. They have fewer strokes. They have longer marriages, which is a, to sociologists an important barometer of contentness. Uh, they have higher incomes. Uh, everything about people who's, who believe their lives have meaning is better than those who don't. And, and it, in the literature, it does not not seem to matter whether you derive that belief from religious faith or from ethical philosophy. It, you can believe your life has meaning based on the existence of God, but there could be no God and your life could still be meaningful. There, there, there are lots of reasons to think that life is meaningful and has purpose regardless of whether there's any divinity or not. But, but it is clearly true in psychological literature that you're much, much better off believing that your life has meaning and purpose. And in the last 50 years, we've seen huge drumming from the, from the academy and from the intellectual worlds on the point that life is totally meaningless. I have a colleague, Larry Anacone, who studies the economics of religion, and we did a, a podcast with him that is, is up on the web at, at our Econ Talk site. encourage our listeners to go check that out if you missed it the first time. One of his claims, which I think is quite interesting, is is that religion is surprisingly robust in American life, contrary to, to popular belief. Uh, now, I'm not sure that religious belief is as robust as it once was. I've seen some data that suggests that people's belief in God is is not what it once was. But my my question is that is that if if people go to college and and start to think that life is is meaningless, why aren't they getting 
that ethical side, the non-religious part from 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 college. And is there any survey evidence that if you ask people if their lives are meaningful, that that number has declined? It's I'm a skeptic on that. Do you have any? There is some evidence. Some of it's cited in Progress Paradox, showing that the number of people who believe life has meaning is in decline. Although religious observance is still high, relatively high in the United States, it's in gradual decline. And you see this most pointedly in Western Europe, where religious observance is much lower than it is here in the United States, and the the belief that life is meaningless is far higher than it is here. Now, Larry's Larry's claim, which which I which I'm uh, sympathetic to, is that. Western Europe has more state-run religion. Uh, it's less competitive. In America, we have we have the, a much more powerful separation of church and state. There's much more religious innovation, and the, the customers are served better. Uh, is there are Europeans less happy than we are? Yes, uh, the data shows that they're significantly less happy. How surprising! And they have allegedly better wine and food. How, <laughs> how can that be? Well, they <laughs> and better that. landscapes. They have more pastoral landscapes. They have more pastoral landscapes, <laughs> and there's a, it doesn't apply to every country. Uh, well-being, self-reported well-being is very high right now in Ireland, for example. And a lot of the researchers think that the people measure their well-being based on what the trend lines are. In other words, if, they're li- if, if the last 10 years have been good, it tends to put you in a good mood. And the last 10 years, everything's been great in Ireland. So uh, Ireland has very high reported well-being. Where are they miserable? Uh, actually, the most miserable country in the world is Japan, according to research. Hmm. The Japanese privately describe themselves to to researchers as really, really miserable. And Japan, I would argue, is the most money-focused culture in the world. Uh, certainly, we have our problems with materialism and here in the United States, where Japan is not alone, but uh, I would say Japan is the most materialistic of, of the major cultures, and they're rendered most unhappy by it. Why would you say that about Japan? Oh, I think just uh, th- things are, are things are measured in money terms more so in Japan than they are here. Hmm. Um, but that's a, I admit that that's a generality. What about Western Europe? Where are, where are people unhappy in the literature in Western Europe? Uh, it, it, uh, unhappy fairly. I mean, in, relatively. To rel- say, if Ireland's a right. a bunch of um, relatively cheerful folk who at least think they're cheerful uh, or self-describe themselves as cheerful, what, what European nations are relatively unhappy? Uh, France and Germany are both relatively unhappy. Uh, the Scandinavian countries are relatively happy. A lot of researchers argue that Scan- Scandinavia has the highest social equality of the Western nations, that this tends to reduce stress. And in, in Scandinavian culture, honesty is probably valued more than in any other culture. It's really, in all the Scandinavian nations, to tell a lie is really just considered totally shameful. And a lot of the research, in the, including by Daniel Kahneman of Princeton suggests that people are happier in cultures where there's honesty. That if you if you believe that the other people around you are telling you the truth, that it increases your well-being. So Scandinavia seems to be better off in that regard. That's very interesting. Uh, any other um, speculations on the the source of this unhappiness before uh, we move on? Did you want to mention anything else? Well, we've hit some of the main points. I think. Um, there's another theory that I throw out that's kind of a pop psychology theory that I throw out in the book that suggests that unhappiness is kind of the default human condition because it's easier to obtain than happiness. Um, I think one reason that we slip into materialism is that materialism is, a, is an easy goal. If you've had a bad day at the office, you stop at the Best Buy on the way home, you buy some gleaming electronic device, you take it home, you take it out of the box, it gives you an hour of satisfaction to possess that thing, as long as you've got a job and income 
to make a purchase is a is a doable objective. Suppose, on the other hand, you've had a bad day at the office and you come home and you say, you know, the problem is I really don't have a philosophy of life. I've got to develop a philosophy of life, a sense of my purpose in the universe, a sense of my role in the community, and improve the, my relationships with all my friends and loved ones. This is far more important and substantial and admirable than buying something, but it could take you decades to accomplish that. That's but, if you're lucky. If you're lucky, <laughs> right. We've just described what are very, very difficult goals and that people who try earnestly to reach may not succeed in. So I think people default to materialism because it's an easy goal. And um, we, we are seduced and abandoned by our credit cards. In that That's regard. an interesting speculation. I, I, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, an avid proponent of the view that, whoever, that, that you should not believe that whoever has the most toys wins. I think we all understand that, that the pursuit of material well-being in and of itself is, is uh, empty. And yet the pursuit of that well-being does create a lot of the things that give life it's deeper meaning, the health benefits we've talked about, um, the opportunity to share things with loved ones, travel, and do all the things that, that make life pleasant, perhaps not happy, but pleasant. Those things depend on material well-being. And so it's, a, it's an interesting tension, I think, in capitalism uh, between those, those, two, uh, those two realities. We, materialism is, produces many, many non-material benefits and yet materialism for its own sake is, is not particularly rewarding, I don't think. Oh, I think that's clearly true. And, and I, I think the strongest objection that I've heard people make to my thesis and the progress paradoxes is that discontent is actually good for society because it generates productivity. Uh, as you know, a lot of the, the, the most creative people are often the most miserable people, uh, inventors, artists, and so on. Uh, the fact that we're constantly discontent helps make us extremely productive. Americans are really hardworking people. Uh, Suppose a a wave of well-being swept over the country, uh, we we probably produce less. And the the intangible benefits that we get from health care and freedom and communication and so on might decline. Yeah, I think that's that's a a misunderstanding of of what the economy is. I've never understood that argument that somehow the economy is separate from those of us who live in it. You know, if, if, for example, you hear this around Christmas time, the holidays, you hear people say, you know, it's important that people go out and buy because it keeps the economy going. It's a sort of Keynesian, um, Keynesian view, which I don't think it's literally true. But, but the deeper point is that if, if Americans decided to be more spiritual or spend more time with their kids or their grandparents or do more volunteering and, and spent less time in the, in the paid workforce, and instead of working 35 to 40 hours a week as the average person does or 50 or 60 or more hours a week as some driven people do, if we decided to cut those numbers in half, well, the measured economy would get smaller, but we'd be better off. We'd be getting – a a deal that we had chosen of more spiritual things, more aesthetic things, whatever those things were, more family value production than 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 material goods. So I don't want to miss my earlier remark to be misinterpreted about the virtues of materialism. It does not imply that somehow the economy is sustained by this cycle of buying and selling. Um, the economy is what we want it to be to a large extent, and if Americans decided, as, as to some extent we have, to work less and have a smaller economy than we otherwise would, that that'd be just fine. Yeah, and that would be fine with me. And to a certain extent, you see that in Western Europe, where working 
hours are longer. People take longer vacations than they do here. Uh, you say work hours are longer. Do you mean shorter? Shorter. Yeah. Shorter. I, I certainly wouldn't mind at all if Americans as a whole worked a little bit less and consumed a little bit less. I think we'd be better off as a result. Of course, Europeans are taxed more, which uh, Edward Prescott and others have pointed out as part of the reason that they that they work less. I think we romanticize their their work hours as a, as a cultural phenomenon. It may be more of an institutional phenomenon. Could be. Well, I, I want to I want to challenge your thesis with a, with a different argument. Uh, about why people are pessimistic, and I want to introduce it with a story. I, when I lecture on economics, I often give a quiz to my listeners, and my listeners are sometimes congressional staffers. They're sometimes journalists. Uh, they're sometimes law students uh, or uh, regular undergraduates, and these are relatively educated people, some of them highly educated, some of them the congressional staffers and the, the journalists are in the day-to-day -day world of public policy. And I always ask, when I give these quizzes, I always ask the question, what is our standard of living today relative to 100 years ago? And the, the median answer is almost always the same across all these different groups. The median answer is that we're 50% better off today Only 50. Wow. In, material, in a material sense, not, not on these – these psychological factors, not on social factors such as uh, health or uh, other measures of social unrest. That's versus crime. 100 years ago, Russell? Yep. I'd say 500%. Yeah, zero. it's at least, well, it's hard to estimate because of changes in quality of the goods and, and measuring inflation accurately is, is, is impossible over that length of time. You could try, but it's impossible to measure it accurately. But it, you take your best stab at it. We're probably somewhere between 7 and 30 times better off. So 50% better off is a horrible guess. It's a horrible guess. Now, I have to say, one of the reasons I think people guess that number is that they think that a percent number can't be more than 100. <laughs> they think that you know anything more than 100%, like 120% of effort, uh, giving 120% is impossible. But of course, in growth rates, you can be over 100 percent, you can be 500 or 1,000 percent higher. Right, sure. So I've started to reword the question. I don't think, but I don't think it's going to matter. I think most people grossly underestimate. People who are supposed to be educated on this are grossly uninformed about the nature of, of human progress. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's usually five or 10 percent of the of the survey and of the people I survey think that we're absolutely worse off than we were 100 years ago in material terms. So the average citizen has no knowledge, excuse me, the average educated citizen has virtually no knowledge of the transformation of our economic life over the last 100 years. Now, why is that? Well, one reason is, is that, well, you don't really have much of an incentive unless it's in your field, you're writing a book on it, or you're an economist. But the other reason is, is that the things they read, which you chronicle very well in the book, are very pessimistic. So it's not surprising that, that they don't really know what's going on since everything they hear over and over again is so unrelentingly negative. So my thesis, it's different from yours, like you allude to a version of this in the book. My thesis is, is that the drumbeat of negativity that people perceive uh, and, and absorb has got to affect their perception of the reality. And isn't that part of the reason we're so, we're so pessimistic? Oh, I'm sure it must be. Um... Uh, all Americans can be fairly accused of knowing not enough about our own past and our recent past. Um, so that we do far more romanticization of the recent past than we do study of the actual social conditions of the time, which were 
largely pretty pretty miserable, especially especially for women. Um, I, I think we engage in a lot of what I call abundance denial in the book. Is that it's very common. But well, for, for example, in psychological data, if you ask Americans how much money is needed to quote live well, as a group, they always say twice as much as they earn, and they say that regardless of where they are on the income ladder. Uh-huh. So somebody who earns fifty thousand says, "Well, you really need a hundred thousand." Somebody who earns a hundred thousand says, "Well, you really need two hundred thousand." And somewhere up on there, uh, going up the ladder, we see, we seem to have trained ourselves to believe that we're not living well, even when we are, and. And I argue in the progress paradox that this is, in a sense, it's a betrayal of our ancestors because they worked hard and sacrificed and in many cases fought in combat terms in order to give us what we enjoy today, personal freedom, material security, etc. And we don't seem as a nation particularly grateful for it or even aware that it's happened. That's a great point. But there is that tendency to, to always think that we haven't... Uh haven't quite made it. And I think part of that is uh, when you ask people what, what class they're in, uh, you might know this data, data better than I do. I don't, I don't know, the, know it very well, but I do know that most people don't describe themselves, uh, themselves as rich. They describe themselves as – most people like to think of themselves as middle class and that that doubling is what would make them rich. But, of course, they're not rich. Those other right. people yeah. are. I think that's definitely a, a human trait. Yes, it is. Probably in the United States today, maybe 20% of our population would be, I don't know what the exact word for it, an affluent class, people whose lives are materially very secure and very favored by the standards of history and who have a large amount of discretionary income and live in nice houses and et cetera. And, and I'm glad that there's so many people like that. I, would, I wish there were more, but most people like that probably stridently describe themselves as middle class and, and uh, say they don't have enough. And going back to your um, the genetic part of this, we are and to put a more positive spin on it, we are uh, the only species that that plans for the future, that can look ahead, and um, part of maybe what that is measuring is the ability of people to dream and think. I wish you know, wish I could have more. And there there is that that acquisitive nature that that um, we think of it often as a negative thing, but there's a certain positive part too, transforming the world, making it better. Yes, that's true. And the psychological data also shows that we very improved circumstances very quickly becomes the norm for most people. So if you previously had a low income in a small house and you, suddenly you get a high income and move into a big house, uh, you, you, you lose your sense of gratitude for that pretty quickly and your thoughts switch to focusing on how can I make my income even higher. Uh, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not sure how the educational system or others could could teach people to deal with this. I think anybody who gets to the level of solid income, nice house in the United States, and there's probably 50 million people who are at that level now, there ought to be some way that they could step back and feel gratitude for their position and, and really begin to enjoy the sense of well-being and experience in life. And, and the data just shows that they don't, that most of them still feel discontent about their circumstances. Now, it says in the Talmud that... Uh one is wealthy when one is content with one's lot, and that's um, it's a tough standard. Most of us have trouble achieving it. I, I'd encourage people listening to check out some of the documentaries that have – they're PBS reality shows that have been done about the past, Frontier House, and others that basically put people of today back in olden times. In the case of Frontier House, I think they go back to 1880s Montana, 
I think there's a Victorian house where they go back to uh, turn of the century, um, 1900 England. And I think it's a wonderful thing for our children to show them what life was like, especially for children. It was particularly miserable. You know, our, our kids complain about – talk about triviality. The things that kids complain about today, of course, you know, we had to walk both ways uphill in the snow uh, barefoot without any shoes. But, you know, more seriously, if you go look at these, these, these docudramas or reality shows where they put modern people in these settings – you really are forced to confront the fact that your life is remarkably better than, than that of our ancestors. Yes, certainly. I think that brings us to the last big point I'd like to make, because people ask, hearing the kind of discussion that you and I are having, what, what can, what, on a practical basis, what can I do to improve my self, sense of well-being? Uh, and, and there is actually practical advice on this score that arises from this new science of positive psychology that's up in the last 20, 25 years in academia, uh, as you know, traditionally the focus of academic psychology has been on neurosis or what makes people un- unhappy or socially maladjusted. And starting uh, about, about 20 years ago, a lot of academic psychologists started asking the opposite question. What makes people happy? Why are some people sane and virtuous and content? Uh, and the main findings of positive psychology are, are these, that your grandmother's lectures to you about the needs to feel gratitude, forgiveness, and optimism your grandmother was right that the data shows that people who are forgiving of others, who are optimistic about their lives, and who feel gratitude either to God or to the universe for for being in existence, are are happier. They have higher sense of well-being, and on all the things that they can measure, that we can measure, they live longer. They have fewer heart attacks, fewer strokes, longer marriages, higher incomes, etc. It's actually in your self-interest to have these altruistic virtues. And to me, this is is like a breakthrough argument. Religions have been argue, have been telling people for centuries or thousands of years that you should be forgiving and, gra- and grateful as a matter of altruism. The recent data shows that it's in your self-interest to be forgiving, grateful, and optimistic because you yourself will have a better experience of life. And if you make the world a better place, then that's just a nice bonus. And I, I find this a fantastically interesting argument that I hope in the years to come will that people will hear more about. Well, it's, it's been a fascinating discussion. My guest today has been Greg Easterbrook, author of The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. He's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Greg, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Russell. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <music>